Welcome to the Supergivers Podcast. I'm Jesse Johnson with today's episode 13 guest, Brittany Dijon, creator of AbleThrive.com, a website dedicated to raising consciousness and confidence for people with disabilities. Through her work and personal sharing, we'll learn about unconscious bias and how it keeps us from connection and compassion, and sometimes simple action. In this conversation, we'll also consider what we all can learn by exploring our own biases, assumptions, and beliefs about folks with disabilities and how this personal work might change human relationship patterns on a broad scale. Yeah, well, I just want to say, Brittany, thank you so much for applying to be on here and and for showing up and making it work. It's awesome to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so for people who who may not know who you are, um, maybe you could give us just like a a real clear vision of Able Thrive and, and what its mission is. Sure. So uh, Able Thrive, our mission is to make sure people with disabilities and their families have the resources they need to thrive and to challenge the, the negative perceptions of disability in society and reframe that so that people with disabilities can uh, live life to the fullest. Hmm, that is concise. It sounds like you've run up against some, how did you describe it, negative misconceptions? Yeah, like, just uh, like assumptions. A lot of them are super well intentioned, mm-hmm. but come you know when you look at how disability is often represented in in media, um, in entertainment, um, and just people's perceptions from over time. You know they can are tend to be or can tend to be limiting or you know that it's it's a, an existence that is not desired or you know the mm. end of a meaningful life. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what would you like people to believe about it? Uh, that it's a part of the of human existence. Um, you know, all of us, all of us go through different things in life um, that kind of make up who we are. And the good and the bad is you can't really leave anything behind. It's all a part of what makes us who we are. So uh, sometimes the way that it's that I've come to understand it is if I look at human beings as puzzles all the little things that make us who we are are pieces and to me disability can just be a puzzle piece on someone's life um but sometimes externally other people can look at that and think their entire puzzle is that puzzle piece when really it's just one element of someone's diverse um puzzle which we all have whether or not a disability is there and it sounds like from what you said to me or what you emailed me that you have some real personal experience growing up with um family member with disability yeah i wonder if you're yep. willing to share about that and how that yeah, shaped sure. you yeah sure so um my dad's a quadriplegic so um he's paralyzed from the chest down and can't move his fingers um and that was because of a car accident and um and so being a kid through this uh probably you know you have to imagine that I was processing all of this as a 12 year old, but, um, you know, we were really lucky to have been just an hour from one of the top spinal cord injury hospitals in the country. And so once my dad was stabilized and in rehab, you know, he was meeting people whose bodies moved like his did, who drove, who worked, who were happily married, who had done all these things that I had never seen on television that didn't exist in my community, at least that I knew about. And, you know, it's just not what people talk about when they think quadriplegic or wheelchairs. Hmm. And so, and from my perception as an individual, 
um, you know, in that car accident, uh, my, the car accident killed my younger brother and, and my dad was injured. So from again, a 12 year old perspective, um, once I, I had found out about my brother before I found out about my dad. And so once I found out about my dad, really all that I wanted was for him to survive. Um, and so probably by the time that they were telling me he wasn't going to walk anymore, I probably didn't take that again as a 12 year old as, as traumatically as some of the adults around me. Um, because to me, the important pieces were there. My dad was there and, and then thankfully we had this support, which gave us the tools to rebuild a life that ultimately, you know, is what we have today, which is, you know, my dad dad regained his independence, um, went back to work, is still happily married, um, danced with me at my wedding, you know, did, mm. did all the things that, you know, m- most people are surprised by when I tell them. Um, and even to the point where I've gotten people who, who would tell me that they'd rather be dead than live, um, than, than be paralyzed. So, I mean, that's, that's when you tell me that, you know, I obviously do not wish that my dad had died rather than living the life that he lives today. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like your ability, your ability, however, it came out through, you know, the age you were and the time in your life and the perspective you had, your ability to see, see the gratitude for the situation, see the person through the event has carried over into what you're creating for people, it sounds like. Well, again, the key, the key point, like a huge, huge factor that really can't be underappreciated is, is our access to support resources and those mentors I mentioned. And the fact that we were, you know, back then insurance companies paid for five months of inpatient rehab. And now for talking spinal cord injury, that average is 37 days. So, I mean, people are, Mm you know, getting into this life and, you know, it's still not common knowledge that, that it is possible, but it's, it isn't just, um, necessarily a mindset thing. It, it is also access to resources. So, so able thrive for me comes from this idea that the, the mental side of it is of course, like if so long, if you've got, if you're living, you've got a life to live in my opinion, it's just a matter of figuring out how to hack it or how to, how to find a pathway that's going to work so that you can live your life to the fullest, whatever that might mean for you, because everyone's different. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it's the actual practical, like, you know, if, if you're paralyzed and, and you didn't know that you don't need to move your legs to drive, I doubt you'd Google it. So it's important that also something is being done to make sure that people who end up in this situation, and I'm using paralysis as an example, but you could extrapolate this to really any disability or even like for me as a woman, you know, like, if you don't, as a woman, it helps when you see other women doing things to know that it's possible, right? So whatever group people can, identities people have, it, it helps to have representation and mentors and visibility and then also the tools to make that happen. So Able to Drive is how do we get a mentality around like, again, living life to the fullest um, and humanity and knowing that, you know, I didn't have, I didn't grow up with a lesser dad. I grew up with my dad who happens to be in a wheelchair, um, you know, and get people to get in this mindset where, you know, some disabilities are visible and some aren't. And whether, in my opinion, whether or not you call it a disability, we all have things that have made us who we are. So rather than judging or assuming, you know, that in, a, in life in a wheelchair, indefinite and, you know, must be lesser, 
let's just come from a position of empathy and and make sure people have what they need to kind of move forward. Yeah, well, you just answered a lot of what I was going to ask. I'm curious to know. Oh, oops. No, no <laughs> oh, that, that's, okay. that's great. It's all great. It's all great. Um, I guess what I was going to say is, so what does Able Thrive provide that's missing? And part of that you described, um, but I'm sensing that there's more. Really, it's it's more than just a website that links resources, although that is not by any means a small thing, right? It sounds like you're actually trying to influence the way that um, the cultural, not only education level of what it means to to have a disability, but also right. the belief systems that our culture holds around, yeah, around the value of life and the experience right. of life. So how does it do that? So um, there's, there's kind of two parts to it that I think of. Um, so the platform side, I guess to me, if I look at the, if you consider disability issues big picture as an onion and you peel back the layers of the onion and and from my observation over the years to me it comes down to how people would like if the roots of the problem peeling back the onion to me it's how people with disabilities view themselves and or how society views them because you can get someone with a disability who's incredibly confident and you know accomplished and all these things but they'll still hit barriers in society but then unfortunately, you still have tons of people with disabilities who don't even see that they have a life worth pursuing. Right. You know, it's just this immediate assumption. But there, of course, that's not everyone. But so the platform side of Able Thrive is about understanding how do we get people the information and the tools they need to understand that they have a life worth living. Huh. Um, and then by doing that, if we did only that, we're still not dealing with the fact that society is still looking at and discriminating the way it does for disability. Now, I'll caveat that with saying, like, I do think a lot of the discrimination from people is well-intentioned. Uh, not the not discrimination, but I mean, like, people's assumptions or misconceptions about disability is often well-intentioned. They just don't know any better. Mm-hmm. So there's a side of Able Thrive that says, well, how do we bring visibility to the lives of people like my dad and, and other people we feature on Able Thrive to challenge people's mindsets and open their minds to... Um, to that world. And so, for example, we've done, we've done some campaigns, like, um, we did a love campaign where we just got a ton of different people sharing photos where at least one of the partners in the relationship had a, a visible or disclosed disability in some form. And because we wanted to show people what love looks like, you know, and we do a campaign with the hashtag, this is how I, and we get people to share really short, little video clips about how people do whatever they do. So this is how I cook. This is how I get dressed. This is how I skydive, you know, people doing whatever they do, whatever's authentic for them. And some, some of those videos have broken out of kind of the disability echo chambers and have gotten into mainstream media, um, you know, like so, mainstream social media and ways that get people to kind of, <laughs> the goal is to get people to kind of tilt their heads and say, huh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> um, because that's a way to kind of start to break down this, um, some of those assumptions that like, for example, someone with a disability wouldn't date, you know, someone, um, if you're in a wheelchair, you can't be a mom, you know, like these are things that people assume to be true and they've never seen anything to challenge them otherwise. You know, even as, as we're talking about this, I'm noticing how the language and the semantics we use can even create this reality. Like I'm, I'm having a discomfort even using the word disabled because that's very like binary. 
That's that's saying somebody can be abled or disabled. Is it not? So language is an extremely um, like debated, I'll say, topic, which I think honestly is the case with really any community. Um, right. So yes, there are camps. There's kind of camps all over the place. There are also people who really embrace the word disabled, prefer to be called disabled as an identity. Um, and then there's people who prefer people first language, like people with disabilities. There are people who have diagnosable, you know, or technically have a diagnosis of some type that many would consider a disability who don't consider themselves disabled. So, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, you know, again, not having a disability myself, it's, I've been in this kind of position of an observer and, and able thrive at its core. It's serving, you know, families like mine, right? So that includes people with disabilities and family members and whatever. So really, um, from my perspective, I do a little work in conversations, like some consulting and speaking around like being a disability ally, kind of like where I stand. Um, and in, really it's an idea that language isn't necessarily like you can't make that decision for someone else. Um, you know, just like I can't tell you how to be, you know, whatever identity you may be. It's, it's a very personal thing. So really, um, you know, from my person, like what I do is I default to people first language because that's what's considered politically correct. But then if someone were to correct me and say that they prefer disabled, like I'm there, I'll do it, you know, or I'll adapt as much as like, you know, if a transgender person asked me to use a different pronoun or I mess up a pronoun, like, sure, you know, you, you make that adaptation. Um, so it can be difficult sometimes, like people have very strong opinions about it. And so, you know, at the end of the day for Able Thrive, it's about people finding out what works for them and connecting them to kind of the resources that will help them figure out their journey. But yeah, it's, Unfortunately, the way that it can be like used in the media and things like that, then yes, it can paint some like disabled equals sad, right? And that's just yeah. that is a that is a an assumption that is perpetuated a lot in media. But if you know, if you knew or saw more people with disabilities who are actively participating, doing life, then you know it doesn't necessarily feel so uncomfortable or binary. Yeah, you're really working hard to change the narrative. Right. Well, it's like these are individual human beings who have, you know, complex, diverse experiences, personalities, which and the point is that I'm basically describing every single human being on the planet. So (laughs) what I would like to see is like there's an otherness that is, um, in my opinion, like attached to disability that like, you know, you talk about diversity and you talk race, gender and sexual orientation um, and a lot of times disability is not a part of that conversation because it's still othered, um, even within, you know, that diversity dialogue. And so for me, it's more about like, what can I do from my position as, as an ally to say, hey, you know, you might be a little awkward around someone with a disability, but let's help you understand like authentic representations of this community who are trying just as hard as you are to live their life to the fullest and you know, you can start to understand that people who might seem different than you on paper um, have more in common than you might think. So how many people on the earth today would you say qualify to be uh, in some way categorized as disabled? So according to the World Health Organization, it's over a billion. Wow. What's our total population right now? Six, seven? I think six, between six and seven. 
Right. So, okay, we're in the range of 15%. Yeah, um, I, you see numbers usually around that between like 15, 20, depends, but okay. it's a lot. It's usually more than people um, <laughs> assume. I would love if you can answer the, the question you asked yourself rhetorically a minute ago, because I'm like sifting through the stats in my mind and I'm guessing, okay, well, chances are that a lot of people listening to this might either know somebody mm-hmm. um, or work with somebody or have a a family member, you know, a friend's family member or yeah. or someone in their own family. So it's so much more around us than we might be awake to, which is I know part of your part of your mission. So mm-hmm. the question you asked a minute ago was something to the effect of how how can I be an ally of yeah. this population? So give give me some practical things that somebody could go out and do today that would start changing the landscape of of people with disabilities. Yeah, I think there's a few things that people can do. Um, And a lot of times it's even like a personal reflection, which I think is helpful because it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go, you know, chat with the first person with a visible disability that you see. Sure. It's it's first like checking some assumptions that people make. Um, So, for example, I'm talking if people really don't have any experience, right, and they're uncomfortable at the prospect of engaging with people with disabilities. Um, And so the first thing that I usually will ask people is, um, you know, kind of get a sense and and think, like, if you think about someone with a disability, do you have kind of a knee-jerk reaction of sympathy? Like, poor him, poor her. Um, And that's a really important kind of self-reflection step because if that's the case, and again, I say all this with (laughs) kindness, you know, like there's nothing wrong with you if you've thought that, but it's, you know, the question I would ask then is why? Because then that starts to uncover some assumptions that people make. Well, and, and the people that I've worked with over the, over the years, it's kind of like, no one's ever been asked that, you know, why do they feel bad for them? It's Mm -hmm. like this assumption we just make like, well, he's in a wheelchair, duh. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, why? Cause well, you know, is it because you think he or she, you know, and then when, and that's something that someone can have a conversation with on their own. Right. And that's when the, the step to take kind of through that self-reflection is a shift from sympathy to empathy. Mm. So are you sad for them because it sucks when you show up at a restaurant that said they were wheelchair accessible and then there's stairs like yeah, that sucks, but that's that can be empathy, right? That doesn't have to be sympathy. Sympathy kind of kicks you instantly into this kind of like um, patronizing dynamic, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Uh-huh. You know, there's a time and a place for sympathy, you know, appropriately. But um, you know, for example, if we're talking, my dad has been in a wheelchair for 19 years. The moment when sympathy was appropriate for a tragedy of traumatic, you know, the, when the accident happened, that window's kind of passed. Um, and where, you know, where sympathy, you, and this happens again, like if you know someone who's lost a loved one, 10 years later, being actively sympathetic is not as helpful in my opinion as being empathetic. You still know that that is a part of who that person is and their journey, whatever loss that happened to be. And, and similarly, like when it comes to disability for me, it's like, yeah, please empathize with people with disabilities that when things aren't accessible, it's terrible that can help you. That's a step to being an ally. What, you know, when you can walk up those steps, you can ask why there's not a ramp, you know, at some, cause at some point you might need that ramp. If you have an injury, if you have a baby and need to push a stroller, like this, this idea that access is only for a small group of people who wouldn't leave their houses anyway. 
you know, that's, that's steeped in a lot of like antiquated assumptions. So starting first and foremost to ask yourself, like, why do I feel bad for him or her can lead you down a path of saying like, Oh, well, like, yeah. Cause it would suck if you can't get in there, but maybe there's something I can do about that. Um, or looking at your own spaces and offices and, and grocery stores or wherever you frequent. Um, and, and then kind of, if it's like, well, it must be so hard. Right. And again, then it's like, well, why? And some people, you know, have come to me and said that they feel bad because my dad is in a wheelchair about being a dad. And I said, well, since when does standing on two feet mean you're a good parent? And it challenges people to think a little bit more deeply. Like what does it mean to be a romantic partner, a parent, a friend, a, a student. And that's where you can start to open those up. And then I would say like on a, on a more kind of practical level beyond self-reflection, like and, and Able Thrive is a great place for this. Like jump on ablethrive.com and just browse a little bit, R- read five posts, you know, pick five and just expose yourself. We have t- over a thousand posts of authentic representations of people's lives with disabilities categories are across the top. You can see sports, you can see dating, you can see, um, how people get in and out of bed or get dressed and life skills, you know, traveling, seeing how people explore the world. Those are the kinds of things that will just make, again, that little head tilt, like, Oh, I didn't know people did that. And that's a way that you can educate yourself, um, and, and be a bit more aware. Yeah. It sounds like at the heart of this, it's really challenging people to, kind of explore their own stories and and something that you didn't necessarily say but something that's coming to me um that I'll, I'd love for you to challenge is maybe a step further would be what what is my who is my reaction serving like mm. even, even if I'm right uh, okay I see right like even if I'm right about you know so and so in the wheelchair who does that serve right? right so it's almost like I hear you saying like really check your reaction you can have your reaction, but really be conscious of it, and mm-hmm. and get in a get in more of a, an empathic space, which would be more like aligning with the experience of the other rather than just coming from some sort of unconscious, you know, unconscious story that you're telling yourself, right? Yeah, and because I, I think also it's like again, we're all entitled to our opinions, but it's it's the the idea that disability is different from other kind of life circumstances. Um, on a on a deep level. And so, for example, like what I usually get people to kind of frame their mindset on this is like, imagine like the top three things that you deal with in your life. This is for anyone. And imagine then that I told you that you had to put them on a t-shirt. And you had to wear that t-shirt every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> hmm. the, the, the way the entire world would interact with you would be different. And you just pick one. Don't even say three. Pick one thing. Right. Then... So, for example, if the, if the disability is visible, what I tell people is what they put on their shirt might not even be their disability. It might be, but it might not be. And that's something where and, – and you can't know by looking at someone. That's like, again, like visual cues give nothing in terms of telling anyone's quality of life, whether you think you can see something or not. It's as uh, – to me, it's as misinformed as saying like, oh, you're a woman, therefore X. Like, it's just, we don't do that for any other demographic. Why would we do it for disability? So, like, for me, I've used that example. Like, if my shirt said drug addict, that would completely change how any single person interacted with me for the rest of my life. However, 
what you lose by only looking at the word and judging on the word is you don't know if I'm proud of the fact that I was a drug addict because maybe it's made me who I am and maybe I married my therapist and I wouldn't change what I went through because my life is better. Or maybe it's something I'm still actively working on and maybe it's something that is hard and I am going through a rough time or, you know, all of everywhere between like those spectrums and everything in between is possible. And that's something where I, but me showing up to a job interview, for example, that's not something I'd want to be judged for, right? I'd want an opportunity to show up with my skills and my, you know, things like that. And so whether it's that or, you know, abuse or depression or bad, you know, challenging relationships, like whatever people deal with on a day to day, uh, I don't know, divorce, like loss, any of those things that you might put on a shirt that you grapple with, just imagine showing up with that shirt at a job interview. And that's what a lot of people with disabilities have, to, uh, at least visible or disclosed disabilities, have to deal with because they're going to face that kind of immediate assumptions that, oh, that equals this, therefore bad, or therefore incapable or pitiable or whatever you know assumptions people might make. Mm, I love that. I'm writing down even <laughs> that that could be a great empathy exercise, right? For yeah, <laughs> for us, to, for each of us to imagine, like, what that's is my a, most? What is my most? Of, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's one of the like a workshop that I have. I have four steps to being a disability ally, and that's that's one of those exercises. And and because again, for me, if I look at this from the perception of the daughter of a quadriplegic, I I don't want people looking at my dad other than seeing my dad as a complex, diverse, you know, unique individual, as I would want you to look at me as I would want you to look at my friends or you or and you know, that's just humanity. Mm. And I think we're we are stronger uh, in a society in a community, in a neighborhood, in a school in a company, when when we can see and appreciate what people bring to the table. But like from a career standpoint, for example, I, I do these talks a lot of times with companies and stuff who are interested in diversity and inclusion, but like disabilities is, is not yet kind of integrated, but they want to be and don't really know where to go. And and for me, a lot of that's, it's a mental step first. And it doesn't matter if it's a company or a community, but it's a way to say like, if you're not starting from that vantage point of seeing people with disabilities as human beings first with diverse and unique potential, like any other person, um, you miss out on the fact that like, for example, my dad had to completely learn how to live a life with a body that changed for him when he was 40 years old. Like the degree of adaptability and problem solving capabilities that my dad and so many other people with disabilities have make them exceptional, like members of teams, you know, in a, in a professional setting. But if you're not going to come from a position of getting on a sense, what, what someone brings to the table in a job interview, you know, you might miss that. And they might actually be a phenomenal fit for your team. And they might not be, which is fine because, hey, that's the interview process. But what I don't want to see, what I would like to see change is, is the preemptive, either lack of access to opportunity or preemptive non-accepting without actually getting to know what someone offers. Yeah, like like anything involving bias, right? You don't want somebody... Yes. Somebody discriminated discriminated against because of bias. You want them discriminated against because of quali- qualification. Or <laughs> right. Like if you're a software, if you're actual. going for a software engineering job and you've never been a software engineer before, and they want you to have five years of experience, like by all means, like right. move on to the next applicant. <laughs> right. Well, but this- if that person's blind and has ten years of experience, like 
interview them. Right. You know, like. Totally. Yeah. Um, this, this brings up a, a question I'm really curious about. So in, in the multicultural sense, which I, I so appreciate that you're able to hold this broad perspective as ableism among the spectrum of, of, you know, multicultural consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times, you know, when race is so big in our country right now and we'll run into, I'll, I'll see this a lot, um, in my circles, where people who claim they are not racist or have no racial bias, um, which I don't believe is possible personally, um, mm-hmm. will say they don't see color. And to me, that's yeah. that that's a sign that they're just not in touch with their bias. And mm-hmm. actually, you know what what I've learned and been taught and and experienced is that it's actually really important to see color and then to mm-hmm. see 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 the stories that I'm making about color. That's where it really starts. Um, right. And how I can show up for that experience. So I'm trying to figure out what's the equivalent of that, because you are you're coming back to this point about, you know, obviously not operating from my own story about somebody. If I see him or her in this and, and they they seem to have uh, appear in a way that I, I I'm interpreting. Um, so how does that fit with with this world of ableism that we, we both need to acknowledge what we're seeing, but also not make assumptions about it. Right. And again, this kind of comes back to like me not having a disability. I can't like speak for people with disabilities. So everything I share comes from a position of observation and, and the correlation to like, for example, what you brought up with race that I've observed is like, um, you know, disability. It's, it's just, it's like pretending that the disability isn't there to me as like a colorblind type argument where it's like, Mm -hmm. Where, where for people who either have very strong disability pride or for people who maybe don't have disability pride but still, like, understand that this is a fundamental part of what's formed who they are as a person or, like, a big part of their journey. Like, you know, the, you don't have to pretend that's not there because <laughs> it's, it's a part of who they are, but it's, like, see what makes me who I am, like, but see that I am more than, than just that when we're talking mm-hmm. about a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, like you know, comes back to that whole concept of like, we are all complex, diverse individuals, right? So whether you, um, whatever labels someone, like say it's, you know, person of color with a disability, a woman, or, you know, people who have these intersectional identities, like there's, these are all just pieces of what makes someone who they are. But what, what the common core is for me is that everyone is first and foremost a human. And then you get to then figure out kind of what are the pieces that bring that person's vibrancy to life mm-hmm. Great. You know? yeah so. so so let's do an example so i think one thing um if you're willing you can you can kind of use me as a as an example mm-hmm. so over the years i've had kind of a biased interaction with people in wheelchairs where mm-hmm. where i'll sort of freeze like i won't mm-hmm. i won't really know how to respond and so i i will often end up not saying anything and i'm talking Mm -hmm. about like you know if i pass somebody on the street and Mm -hmm. my normal default is to make eye contact um smile say hello uh if it's just you mean your normal default right if there's no wheelchair involved if it's if it's non-wheelchair thank you normal is is not uh, a great word i'm i'm realizing right so my (laughs) my my default right is is to go towards connection and say hello and i'll oftentimes freeze and mm. and make you know probably ten assumptions in half a second that I'm not even aware of. <laughs> Fair, right? Yep. So what I've been practicing recently is uh, if I have an opportunity to 
past somebody in a wheelchair is is to try to access the part of me that is is the default part and right. just say hello. Yes. But at the yes. same but at the same time, let's say we're going into the grocery store at the same time and um would it be appropriate then for me to uh like how would I handle going through the door at the same time with that person? Because that's where you're saying like it's it's foolish to ignore, <laughs> right? That, right. that this but person's that is, in a wheelchair. Right. right. But anytime you're trying to go through a door at the same time with someone else, you're going to have to adapt somehow. Right. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, from my pers- I think really what you just mentioned in terms of like tapping into your desire to say hello to people, mm-hmm. um, that's actually something I try to do in my life, just period. I don't think any of us say hello to each other enough on the street. Um, so especially in cities. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, like that's, for me, it's getting people to connect with their social norms, whatever that means for them, and using that with a group of people they didn't think they could previously do that with. There's no circumstances under which you can't say hello to someone if that's you. But if it's not you, like if it's what I would say is the the bad side of that would be if you don't say hi to anyone, but you only say hi to people with disabilities because they're disabled, like that's a little bit like, okay. You know, they don't need you to be just extra extra nice. But if you're someone who says hello to everybody, by all means, like, why would you not do it that way? Right. Um, When it comes to like doors and stuff, this kind of comes into one of the other elements and kind of these four steps that I talk to people about, which is like um, knowing when or how to help. And the, the short answer is that, you know, it's as complex of an answer for each individual as it would be like for any human you'd encounter. So, for example, my default for any human being in my life is to ask before I help. And that's something where I want the same, that comes from wanting the same courtesy to me. So if you and I encountered each other in a grocery store and I was carrying a bag that you perceived to look heavy and you said, Hey, would, do you need a hand with that? If I say no, then it would be inappropriate for you to then try to help me. Does that make sense? Yep. So the only difference with disability is sometimes that same exact scenario will happen. However, the person with a disability might say no and the person helps anyway because there's this assumption that they know better. And that can happen with women, you know, like where, you know, show up like, oh, you know. But what I really would say is like, you know, going through a door. If you notice that like maybe they have a wider wheelchair, they need more space, then hey, maybe cut through first, hold the door for them or, you know, let them go, whatever, you know, Imagine you would do it if someone else you were trying to pass and you couldn't pass through with anyone else. Their body just extends to include a wheelchair. But what I would say the opposite, the other element of that is like, and what happens is some people will be people who hold doors for people. Like if you're a person who holds doors for people, by all means, hold doors for people, but don't run from the opposite side of the parking lot because you happen to see someone with a wheelchair at the door, you know, just because you have to hold the door for them. Because you wouldn't do that if the person didn't have the wheelchair. So basically be yourself. Yes. Right. It's it's interesting, though. I, <laughs> I mean, even in imagining my own self in that example, what I think what I'm realizing is I often operate out of, you know, assumed consideration. So I am a person who likes yeah. to hold doors for people, for instance, yeah. right? And so I could get in my head about that and say, oh, my gosh, I don't want this person in a wheelchair to to interpret that I'm making some assumption, I would, I would hold the door because it's normal, but now I'm not because, right. And so, so really it's, it's just helpful even to go through that exercise in my, in, because now I have more, more clarity about what's going on for me. 
uh, in terms of who I am and how I can just kind of like serve more from that place with, with anybody. Um, but specifically in this case, somebody in a wheelchair. Yeah. Right. And so for example, something that might frame this in a way that like people are more used to considering it's like the, um, so you say you hold a door for a woman and that woman yells at you because she says, what do you think? I can't hold the door myself. Does that mean you would never hold the door for another woman again? Right. Right. And that's something where you don't know, maybe she does, maybe she's having a bad day. Maybe she's just not a nice person. You know, like there's a lot of things here. So you might hold a door for a person with a disability one day who might yell at you. Yeah. Now my things to say, so long as you are a door holder guy, (laughs) (laughs) you are doing nothing wrong. It's right. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Even in the last five minutes here, how easy somebody could get in the weeds and, and kind of get frozen. Right. Like I'm imagining, oh. I'm feeling it even in this part of the conversation. I'm like, oh, I'm just getting stuck here, right? Yep. Um, yep. And I, I used to great. have that as well. Like I was great with wheelchairs, but like you know, I used to struggle. Didn't know, for example, speaking to people with Down syndrome was something that I had a I struggled with even through college. Um, and I knew it was wrong because I knew that other people did this with my dad, and I didn't want to do it because I knew somewhere that it was, you know, I knew that it was a person, but I just basically like I got into the same headspace and it's not perfect. But what I usually leave people with is, is guiding, like reconnect to you, like, um, you know, and ask yourself sometimes, like if this person didn't have a disability, would you do say, ask, act like whatever is about to just happen? Yeah. And if the answer is, um, like if the answer is no, you wouldn't do it. If the person didn't have a disability, strongly consider your motivations. You know, it doesn't, nothing is hundred percent. Right. But I mean, if, you know, if you wouldn't run across the parking lot to open that door for someone, if the wheelchair wasn't there, then unless the building's on fire or, you know, like they're about to, you know, there's situations through which everything goes out the door because it's a crisis or it's an emergency. Like, I'm not saying that I'm talking day to day, you know, you don't sprint across the grocery, you know, across the, parking lot to open a door for someone so then don't do it for the person in a wheelchair but like if you would hold the door for someone who's coming behind you then do it and they you know if they're if they don't like if they don't like that that's just you and you can apologize and move on with your day it doesn't mean that you've you know basically i think what happens is a lot of people think that there is a disability etiquette book that exists that they haven't read yet and because they haven't read it yet they feel guilty and the problem with that is the book doesn't exist everyone's different. There's no one way you can know. Yes, you can ask. No, you can't ask. Yes, you can do this. No, you can't. Like that doesn't exist. So by getting people to kind of dial it back to the humanity piece, being who you are as a person, and then seeing the person across from you as a person, um, then you're in a better empathetic angle to say, to just act. And, you know, maybe someday by engaging someone, someone with a disability is going to ask you for in a way that, you know, Maybe a blind person says, can you help me cross the street? And you've never done that before. That's, I know that's a scary scenario for some people, but, but if you're coming from the positions I just described, there's nothing stopping you from saying, how can I best help you? Yep. And then awesome. it's just, hey, you know, then they can tell you because some people will want to take your arm. Some people will want to take your shoulder. Some, you know, because there's no way to walk a blind person across the street. So when you're not afraid to engage someone with a disability, and just can talk to them just as you would talk to anyone else to get to figure out how to 
treat that person as an individual, then, you know, you can feel some of the weight off your shoulders kind of dissipate and just go about your day. Awesome. um, Okay, Brittany Dijon, founder of Able Thrive. How can somebody listening best support Able Thrive? Sure. So, um, I mean, depending on someone's background, so if you have a disability and you, um, or love someone who does, and you want to be a part of making these changes in society or sharing your story, then please reach out to us and you can get on to ablethrive.com, contact us. And if, if anything that I've shared has been new or you're absolutely not a part of this, um, even just telling one person or reading one, telling one person about us, or like I said, read, a handful of articles on Able Thrive, like that's a that's a great way to help us because the more people who are aware of this helps make our lives easier. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and helping us, um, you know, spread the word. But you can check out ablethrive.com or connect with me, and I'm Brittany at ablethrive.com. So I'm happy to to chat with anyone. But definitely, it's a it takes a village. And your website um, connects people from all over with services or just a certain part of the country or the world? Sure. So right now we're predominantly servicing, uh, serving people with paralysis for our pilot because we're still early stage. Okay. So, and actually we share information that isn't geographically based. So we share articles, videos, and products Got it. that, okay. so people can learn from anyone, even if you don't live in the same place. So people with paralysis can register and tell us the mobility of their arms, fingers, trunk, and legs and their interests, and we customize a feed for them so they can see what others like them are doing. Right on, Brittany. Thank you so much for being on and and being a guest and for all the work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Jesse. To learn more about Able Thrive, go straight over to the website and look at some of the vast content that is sure to expand your awareness. It's time to leave you with the question of the day, and we're actually going to use the t-shirt exercise Brittany mentioned. If you haven't imagined it yet, picture the most socially damning statement about your personhood printed on a t-shirt that you had to wear every day for the rest of your life. What would it say? And how might people see you? And if this is all they saw of you, what would you be afraid they'd miss? To find out more about the world of Supergivers, head over to supergivers.com. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, click on the podcast link and send in an application. If you'd like to practice giving towards this show, please tell someone you know to listen in or consider subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and maybe even subscribing to the Supergivers podcast, where we celebrate ordinary people creating extraordinary impact in the world. I'm your host, Jesse Johnson, and I hope you'll pass the giving along.